we've got it loud enough. All right. Um, uh, welcome to Chillicothe Bible Church. If it's your first first time here, we're uh, very glad that you're with us. Uh, if you've been here a long time, we're really glad you're with us. And uh, I want to just make you aware of just a couple things. Your bulletin this time of year, you know, as, uh, as the fall ministry calendar kind of kicks off, uh, is packed full of all kinds of opportunities to serve and all kinds of ministries to be involved in. I want to draw your attention to a couple things. Uh, first of all, uh, if you uh, would like to serve in Awana, uh, Brother Kurt Abbott is going to be our Awana commander this year, and he would like to talk to you about all of the myriad possible ways that you could serve in Awana uh, as a leader, as a verse listener, as a uh, as one of the uh, team leaders in games. Uh, there's all kinds of opportunities to serve, and it is a lot of fun, by the way. Uh, yeah. <laughs> So uh, certainly encourage you to see Kurt. There's a sign-up sheet out in the hallway. Uh, also, if you are new to Chillicothe Bible Church and you'd like to know a little more, uh, spend a little time um, with me, uh, I'd be happy to do that with you. Uh, and, uh, and we have our, our Explorers class, our new members class coming up here in a, uh, a bit. And so if you'd be interested in that, uh, finding out uh, more about the church, getting every one of your questions answered uh, as, as honestly and as completely as we know how to tell you the truth. We will tell you anything you want to know about the church. Um, and, uh, and so that's coming up. And then also this next week, this next Sunday, if you're a member here already, we need you to be here uh, right after church on Sunday afternoon uh, for a short, very short, uh, hopefully, uh, congregational meeting regarding the budget. Uh, we have some very good news to share with you uh, in that, and uh, some some re some uh, uh, restoration of some money that uh, will get to go back into the budget. And we're going to have a discussion and a vote on how that goes. So, uh, if you have questions about that, uh, see uh, see Kurt Abbott, see me, see Kenton Bergman. Um, see Mark Swanson, Rick Rosetto, Tony Sanders, uh, in, uh, Stephen, me, uh, any of the elders can answer questions uh, for you on that. So, but encourage you to, uh, to attend that meeting and uh, rejoice with us in God's provision. So uh, with that, let's pray, and then we'll get into the scriptures together. God, our Heavenly Father, you have blessed us in myriad ways. From before the foundation of the world, uh, we were known to you as your children. You have written our names in your book from before there was time. And ever since then, Father, you have been unfolding your plan in the creation and in our daily lives that we might be brought to you and that we might be fully transformed from the sinners we are in Adam to the to the new life we have in Christ. Father, we, we cannot fathom the sum of your thoughts uh, about us. And wherever we, wherever we go, when we rise up and when we lie down, if we go to the far side of the sea, you are there and you are with us. 
And Father, we love you. And we pray that as we open your, your word and as we hear from it what it has to teach us, Father, we pray that you would uh, open our eyes to see your magnificent mercy to us and help us to rejoice in it and to celebrate it. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, you'll have to tell me, I, I still sound like, I feel, I feel like I'm a little bit loud up here. Am I still a little loud? All right. Okay. All right. Well, okay. Well, I don't want to be yelling at you all, so uh, you gotta, you got to let me know, all right? Uh, well, this morning we're going to look again at Romans chapter 9, uh, which is an explanation from the Apostle Paul that God's inspired instruction to us uh, about his sovereign mercy and his sovereign grace in our salvation. Uh, from the beginning of this chapter to the end, what Paul is doing is reminding us that it is God who saves us and that we contribute exactly nothing to it. That it is God who saves us and we contribute nothing to our own salvation, right? I mean, if you want to say, I made a contribution to your salvation, you can say this. I did all of the sinning, 100% of the sinning, and God did 100% of all the saving, right? My contribution was needing salvation. God's contribution was giving it, <laughs> okay? Um, but we contribute nothing to our salvation, or as Paul says uh, elsewhere in Ephesians chapter 2, you may remember this verse, says, it is a gift of God, not by works, in other words, not by anything we do, so that how many can boast? No one can boast. Amen? So our salvation is an act of God from start to finish. And we, we have some questions about that. We kind of go, well, wait a minute, ha hang on, how can that all be? How does that work? Well, uh, many people, as they come to understand these things, it seems sort of hard and confusing and actually unfair to them that God does not save everyone, but saves only those whom he has purposed beforehand to save by his sovereign grace. And they begin to wonder as they think about it, well, is God unjust in his sovereign mercy? Doesn't justice demand treating everybody equally instead of giving divine favor only to some people? And God, in his great grace, uh, does not leave us to wonder about these kinds of questions. In fact, he asks them and answers them in the text that we're looking at this morning. So uh, he's caused Paul to write his answers uh, in his word and to tell us exactly what he thinks about them. So I want to um, show that to you beginning in verse 14 here, Romans chapter 9, which is all about, uh, this section is all about God's sovereign mercy. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, 
that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. So here's, the, here's one of the great things about uh, this section of scripture. Paul actually anticipates some of our objections and under the inspiration of the Spirit writes them down and gives answers to what we're thinking about. Now, one of the things I want you to notice is nowhere in this entire chapter does Paul ever make an appeal to what you might call free will. It would be an easy out if he did, but he never says that. He never says, well, you have to understand, see, that, that God does what he can, but then humans have to respond, and, you know, it's really kind of up to you, and if you don't respond, well, then you're just short. He never says that. That's how a lot of Christians try to explain how salvation works, but God himself in this chapter where he's addressing these issues never does that. He never says, well, salvation is really up to you and your response. He says, it is God who chooses. It is God who calls. It is God who justifies. It is God who sanctifies. It is God who glorifies. So salvation from start to finish is an act of God. Now, again, that might make you really uncomfortable. It might even blow your mind a little bit. But remember last week I showed you that picture from the, uh, the old maps showed California as an island, and that's goofy, right? And we know that that's not true. We might sometimes wish that it were, but it's not actually true that California is not part of the mainland here, right? Uh, we have to navigate by the right map, and the right map is found in God's Word, not what we think ought to be the case. Um... What you see here in these verses is God's absolute freedom in what he chooses to do with the creatures that he has made. Now look closely here with me. In verse 14, Paul asked the question, is there injustice on God's part? What's his answer? By no means. In other words, absolutely not. There's no possible way for God to be unjust. And then verse 15 to 18 are Paul's explanation. He gives two examples of how God's mercy really works. Now, verse 15 is a quotation. Uh, it's from Exodus chapter 33 and verse 19. Now, if you don't remember, Exodus 32 is the golden calf incident. Okay? While Moses is up on the mountain, he's there for 40 days, he's receiving the law of God, and and, um, and he is hearing all the things that God has to say about how he's going to be in covenant with his people. And then while all that's going on, they're down at the base of the mountain engaged in uh, some, some kind of a scene out of like, you know, a wild party in Las Vegas, right? And all that is going on at the base of the mountain while God is speaking to Moses and giving him the law on the top of the mountain. And then Moses comes down, and he sees all of this going on. Do you remember what he does? He breaks the tablets, throws them down, breaks them, 
to show that God's covenant with his people has been broken. And there's all this judgment that comes down on the people. And then Moses goes back up the mountain. You can always tell, by the way, who the man of God is in the scriptures. Because you always find him interceding with God on behalf of his people. Right? And that's what Moses is doing. He's up on top of the mountain and he is pleading with God to not do what he has told Moses he wants to do, which is to wipe them all out and start over with a new nation with Moses as the founder. And he says, God, remember, you said these are your people. And you said, I'm going to bring them out of Egypt. And you said that you're going to bring them up into the promised land. And you said that you had the power to do that. Now imagine if you kill them all in the wilderness. What will happen? Everybody in Egypt and all over that heard about what you did to the Egyptians is now going to say, well, God could maybe get them out of Egypt, but I guess he wasn't quite big enough to get them into the promised land, and so he killed them all in the desert. God, you wouldn't want to do that. I mean, your reputation will really take a hit. And by the way, these are still your people. These are your people. God and Moses have kind of this exchange. God keeps referring to them as Moses' people. These people that you brought up out of Egypt, <laughs> right? And Moses says, no, no, I was there. It was you who brought them up out of Egypt. They're your people, right? It's kind of like parents when, they, um, when, they, when their kid does something bad, right? Uh, wife calls the husband up at work and says, hey, you'll never guess what your son did, <laughs> right? And, and dad will come back with, my son? No, no, my son would never do that, <laughs> right? Well, God and Moses are having this kind of exchange. And ultimately, God says, they are my people, and I will go up with you, and I will take them into the promised land. And he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. In other words, what he's telling Moses is, you're right, I have, I have set my heart on these people, even though they're sinful, and I have determined from eternity past to give them my mercy, and therefore I'm going to keep covenant, even though they have broken it. I'm going to keep covenant. I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to have compassion on these folks. But he also, there's the other side to that, right? Um, ultimately, what he's saying, in other words, is ultimately the decision either to bless or to punish rests with who? With God. Not with Moses. At the end of all this conversation that he's had, ultimately the decision rests not on Moses' exertions in interceding in prayer, but on God who makes the decision, right? And that's the reason Paul's quoting that. But... Uh, God had every right to judge them all for their rebellion, and so that he chose not to destroy them was an act of God's free and sovereign grace. Did they all deserve to get destroyed in the desert? Yes, absolutely they did. Uh, remember, the first two commandments of the covenant God made with his people are you shall have no other God before me, and you shall not make any graven image, right? And they did both of those while the law is being given, right? 
Plus violated a whole bunch of other stuff down the tablets besides. So did God have the right to destroy them? Yes, he did. Every human being, and the point is, is every human being in the same way deserves punishment and judgment. Amen? You know, we cannot say to God, well, I want him to give me what I deserve. Well, we can. But we will not like the outcome if he answers that prayer, right? Because what we deserve is wrath, judgment, and hell. And we sometimes, I think, have trouble understanding why God doesn't save everybody. And I think that's because in our heart of hearts, what we really think is that our sin is really not that bad. And we really don't deserve the punishment that God says we do deserve. And so we, we think of ourselves, in fact, you'll hear people say this all the time. They'll say that, well, I think all people are what? Basically good. And basically what we think is that we're basically in need of a few tweaks here and there, but we're all, you know, basically good. You know, we're like an old car that maybe needs a few parts replaced here and there. But, you know, it's still a good car. That's kind of how we think of it. But that's not, that's not how God thinks of it at all. He says, no, you're basically evil with a few tiny little rays of light here and there. But basically, you deserve to be separated from me for eternity in hell. And you know, what's remarkable about God is not that he shows mercy to some, but that he shows mercy to any. You know, the Bible's fundamental question is not, how can a loving God send good people to hell? It's how can a just God avoid sending all of these wicked people to hell? And if you start from that assumption, from that perspective, then that God saves anyone is an amazing act of mercy. Now look at verse 17 and 18. Here, in, you know, in the previous verses we got an example of the leader of God's people. And here Paul refers to Exodus again. He talks about how God used the oppressor of his people. Now, like all of us, Pharaoh deserved immediate death for his wickedness. He did. Pharaoh was a very wicked man. He enjoyed enslaving God's people. And in fact, he was sadistic in it, and he took joy in making it worse for them. But God left him alive, and he left him alive for a very specific reason, so that God could demonstrate his power through his repeated defeats of Pharaoh and all the other gods of Egypt. You know, they worshipped all the things that the plagues were against. They worshipped the Nile River. They worshipped flies. They worshipped frogs. They worshipped cattle. They worshipped uh, the god of the sky. They worshipped the firstborn son of Pharaoh as a god. They worshipped the sun as a god called Ra. And every single one of the plagues are against one of the gods of Egypt, right down to Pharaoh himself. 
And God says, I am not, you know, God says, I'm going to get you to let my people go. And Pharaoh says, uh, no, you're not. I don't know who the Lord is, and I'm not going to let his people go. And God says, very well. You're going to kill my firstborn son. I will kill yours. And we'll see which one of us is God over the people of Israel. And in fact, what happened is this, is that God ensured that Pharaoh did not repent until Egypt was greatly diminished as a nation. Pharaoh's firstborn son died, his army drowned in the Red Sea, the so-called gods of Egypt are all revealed to be powerless idols, and Egypt did not rise in power again as a world-dominating power for hundreds of years after that. And do you know what happened? It just so happened that the crushing of Egypt with the Exodus coincided with the rise of Israel as a nation. And so they were able to get established in the land, to gain their inheritance, to have David and then Solomon become king. And all of that required Egypt being crushed, which is what they were. They were their near neighbor. It was like, it was in a size relationship, it was like Cuba next to the United States. And God ensured that Egypt got crushed so that Israel could be protected and rise. And on top of that, in the very act of crushing the nation of Egypt, he ensured that a whole lot of Egyptians saw who God really was. And they went up with the nation of Israel into the land. The book of Exodus tells us about a mixed multitude who went up with them of all these people that had been in Egypt and they saw God's power and they went, this is stupid. This idolatry in Egypt, this is, this is moronic. I'm not doing this anymore. I know who the real God is. And wonder of wonders, it's not the God of the Pharaoh, it's the God of the slaves. And he took them out. And bottom line, God saved and forgave Israel their sin, but hardened Pharaoh in his wickedness so that his people might be saved and worship him. And Exodus is, in fact, the paradigm for salvation in the whole Old Testament. It is God bringing salvation and deliverance to people who are enslaved in the kingdom of darkness and taking them through the wilderness into the promised land where his presence dwells. If you want a good, a good story about how salvation happens, it's Exodus. And in fact, all through the Old Testament, God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. It is the, the paradigm story for the whole rest of the Old Testament that I am the God who saved you and therefore I'm the God who really is God and therefore I'm the God you need to worship and the point being made here is, just, is that just like back then God allows evil people to persist in their evil because God is using even evil people and their evil to bring salvation for the people he loves and his judgment on evil brings blessing to his people. Just as then, so now. But just as God 
used Pharaoh to accomplish his purposes. God is using wicked people in our day to accomplish his purposes and the salvation of his people. You want to know where one of the places the church is growing like crazy? It's in China. One of the hardest places to be a Christian is the place where God is causing millions of people to come to faith. I'm told there are three million Christians in Iran who have come to Christ through listening to the radio beamed into their country. You want to talk about a hard place to be a believer? Iran is on that list somewhere near the top, I'm guessing. And yet God is using the oppression of his people to bring about the salvation of his people. And God did the same thing then. He is doing the same thing now. He is allowing evil people to persist in their evil because out of all those wicked people, he is saving some. Uh, let's read on. Let's look at verse 19 to 21. God's sovereign mercy is purposefully bestowed. Uh, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Or who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Now here again, Paul is responding to another objection that some of us might have. Let me rephrase it and make it a little more clear. Paul, how can God hold us responsible for sin when we're only carrying out the kind of life that he has planned for us? That's the question. You know, if he has destined me for, to remain in my wickedness, how can he blame me for still being wicked? Uh, it's an excuse, really. It's the idea that somehow I don't freely choose to sin. That somehow God is making me sin. Instead of me being excited about and loving and enjoying my sin. Well, you know, I would be righteous except God made me to be a sinner. And therefore, you know, that's why I'm, that's why I'm in sin. But that's not what the scripture says. The scripture says that the sin that we engage in is something that we do because we love it. We love it to the point that it controls our life and turns us away from God. And as, uh, as Jesus said, uh, if you will not listen to Moses and the prophets, you won't believe even if someone rises from the dead, right? So it isn't that, it isn't that God has given insufficient evidence to help people to turn and repent. It's that he has given marvelous, magnificent testimony of his goodness, grace, and love, and people still freely choose sin instead of that. But on top of that, God is the creator, and he has made us, and he has the right, therefore, to do with us whatever he wants. Now, years ago, I, I went to a, a city called Modra in Slovakia, and uh, the name of the city literally translates, as I understand it, in, uh, in Slovak, to blue, because they have this magnificent uh, blue and white pottery that they make there. Uh, I've got some of it. I, I brought Karen a number of pieces of it in the couple trips that we made. We've got some coffee mugs. I've got some little bud vases. I've got little creamer pitchers and so forth. And they're really neat. You know, they have 
flowers and, and other kinds of blue painted glazed uh, lines and so forth on them. They're really cool. Um, and, the, and we took a tour of the factory, and in the factory there are all these craftsmen that are in there making things, and some of them are making these gorgeous vases, and some are making, uh, you know, pitchers and mugs and glasses and uh, all this kind of thing. And then in another part of the factory, you know what they're making? Uh, the same ceramic toilets. <laughs> all right. In one part of the factory, they're making beautiful things that, you, that are useful for decoration or for coffee or what have you. And in the other part, they're making toilets. And it's out of the same material. I don't know if you're, you like have to work up in your seniority level <laughs> before you get to make vases or what. But, but in any case, that's what they do, okay? You've got some stuff for honorable use, some stuff for dishonorable use amen and and some stuff for flowers and something for other stuff right and uh definitely not flowers right uh and from the same lumps of clay you have uh, this you have a variety of different things that are made some for honorable use some for dishonorable who gives the who gives the potter the right to decide what clay is going to become what Nobody. He's the potter. He gets to decide. And that's the point that Paul is making here, is that God is sovereign in salvation and in judgment. And he gets to decide whether you're a vase or a toilet. Okay? Now that might seem unfair. But remember, if we get justice and what we get is destruction for everybody. If everybody gets justice, then everybody gets destroyed. And not destroyed sooner or later, destroyed immediately. Uh, and God uh, is fulfilling His good plans in both judgment and in salvation. Look at the rest of the, these verses here, 22 to 29. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles? As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people I will call my people and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Now, there's a lot of text I just read you, but let's look at it a little closely here. Verse 22 to 24, we learn what God's plan is. Paul phrases it as a question, but what he's doing is making a statement that this is exactly what God did do. And what God did do was he patiently put up with a whole lot of sinful and rebellious people. 
He didn't judge them immediately like their sins deserved, and he didn't exercise his wrath right away, but he waits. And what, and what is God waiting for? He is waiting because out of them, out of these wicked people who all deserve judgment, God is saving some for himself. And notice, notice this. It's a multiracial, multiethnic group composed of both Jews as well as every kind of Gentile. And it's also specific people whom God knew and chose to send Christ to be redeemed beforehand. And God allows evil men to continue unpunished for a while so that all of those whom he foreknew and chose and predestined and justified and called and sanctified and glorified will be taken through the whole process. Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you are very glad, raise your hand, if you, that God did not fully and finally judge all sinners in the world in 1975? me you know i'm on that list you know why because though i was alive then i was not saved then and god would have been fully justified at that point in sending me to hell because i was still a sinner and i was not repentant of it how about 1985 some of you some of you weren't saved then right 1995 2005 Right? You get the point that God is waiting patiently and putting up with a tremendous amount of sin and wickedness on the earth. He is allowing it to continue. Though in his justice, the right thing to do is to eliminate all of the wicked people, right? But he allows them to continue in their wickedness because there are people among them who are his. It is very much like in the days of Noah and the ark, remember? He allows those wicked people to continue living on the earth for 120 years while Noah and his family build this giant boat in the middle of the desert in a place where it has never rained. Why does he allow all these wicked people around them to continue in their wickedness for all that time? Because the ark's not ready. But according to the plan of God, when the ark was finished, people and the animals were loaded into it, the door was shut, and the rain fell. And God is, a, this is, this is part of the answer, by the way, to why there is so much evil in the world. It's because out of the evil in the world, God is saving a people. And he is allowing evil to persist until the last person who is his is saved. And brought into his family and then evil will be judged the rain will fall verse 25 and 26 we learn that this is not only God's plan from eternity past but it's also the fulfillment of promises that God made through his prophets one of the most beautiful books in the Old Testament is the book of Hosea Hosea is a man who is told to go to a brothel and pick out a bride. 
And he says, go and take to yourself a wife of whoredom, is what the scripture says. And take her home to be your bride. And she is continually unfaithful to him for the entire time they are married. Just like Israel was unfaithful to God for the entire time they were his people. Even when they were... Even when they were in the desert and the tabernacle was there and they could see the Shekinah glory cloud coming down, resting over the, the Ark of the Covenant in the center of the camp, you can literally see the presence of God with your eyes. There are people on the outskirts of, of the camp who are continuing to worship their idols. And when they get into the land, there are people who are continuing to worship their idols. And they did not drive out the Canaanites as they were supposed to do. But they allowed them to persist. And they adopted their gods. And they continued to worship their idols. And they were continually unfaithful. Just like, just like Gomer with Hosea. And they have kids together. And the first one is born. And Hosea looks at this child. And the child does not look like him. And he says, it's not my, not my kid, not my people. And then they have, another, they have another child, and he names that one not loved. Because it's obvious my wife does not love me. Because this one isn't mine either. And then God speaks through Hosea, and he says... Go and show your love to your wife again because in the same way I'm going to restore the nation of Israel. I'm going to restore my people. And the people who, who were not loved will be called beloved. And the people who are not my people are going to be called my people. And it's this beautiful promise of what God is going to do with the nation of Israel, which is yet to be fulfilled in total. But Paul says, applies in the meantime to us. We are the people, the Gentiles, who were not loved of God, and yet we are beloved. And we are the people who are not his people, amen? I don't know, I, I mean, maybe some of you get Jewish heritage somewhere. But what I see is a lot of descendants of the Vikings. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Not God's people. And God says, they're going to be my people. It's the fulfillment of promises. And then he quotes Isaiah again, and he says, he quotes Isaiah a couple times, and he says, you know, even among Israel... Only a remnant were ever saved. And he quotes him again and says, If God had not left us descendants, then we would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. In other words, if God had treated us how our sins deserved, all of us would have been destroyed just like those two ancient cities were. And it is because God chose to intervene and to save that any of us were ever in relationship with him to start with. 
So at the end of the day, we, we get several important things we're told in this text. Over and over, we see that, that salvation is dependent not on us, but solely and completely on God. Because all of us are naturally rebels against Him. And what is strange is not that God saves some, but that He saves any. Anyone at all. In fact, rather than the question being, why does God not save every person, we should see that every person whom God does save is a living and magnificent testimony to God's undeserved grace, not evidence that God is unjust. And in addition, what we should see is that God has patiently allowed evil people to persist because out of them, God is saving people for himself. And when he has finished doing that, then his patience will be exhausted and his judgment will justly fall on all the wicked who reject him. And finally, I think we need to see that if it weren't for God's merciful intervention, then none of us, not anyone in Israel and not a single solitary Gentile, would ever be saved. Because by ourselves, we do not want him The Lord pursues and he woos and wins us in such a gentle and loving and inviting way that we fool ourselves into thinking we are the ones who had something to do with it. But in fact, it's God's pursuit from beginning to end. Now, you might not find this passage very comforting, but I think, um, well, and if you don't, I'm not going to apologize for that because this is what the scripture says and you might still have some questions about this I have some questions about this it's okay to have questions God is bigger and he is able to handle it if we have some things about him we do not understand um, I'm not convinced that I have plumbed the depths of this passage and I feel like I understand these things better than I ever have. It's good to wrestle. If you have some wrestling you're doing right now, it's good to wrestle. It's okay. Uh, but God is real, and he is bigger than all of our questions. And what this passage should do for us is a couple things. It should convince us everlastingly that our salvation is not dependent on us. And because of that, it should, we should find that very reassuring. If my salvation is dependent in any way on me being good enough to earn God's favor, then I'm in a heap of trouble, amen? Because if I can, if I can lose my salvation, then I'll tell you I already have lost it. And the reason that we can have confidence in our, in our security in Christ is that our salvation is not dependent on us to start with. It's dependent on God's grace. You know, my sin runs way too deep for me to gain salvation by my own will and my own exertion. But it is not too deep for God's mercy. And Number, th number two, the other thing this passage should do for us is it should overwhelm us with awe and joy that we should be called the children of God. Right? 
Remember what John says? First John. Some of you probably are going to start singing right about now. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we, wicked, sinful, impure, rebel against God and loving it, should be transformed and renewed and regenerated and saved that we should become the children of God, right? Behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. It ought to overwhelm you with awe that you who were born a rebel and a sinner were instead saved and loved and renewed and transformed. And that God chose to save you not out of any compulsion on his part, but simply out of his free and sovereign mercy. He loves you. Uh, it ought to be a miracle and a wonder and a joy that you can't quite comprehend, but for which you should forever give him praise. Amen? All right, let's pray and then we'll sing. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that out of your sovereign mercy, you chose us, not because we were good, not because we were better than the rest of all the wicked people, not because of our wonderful specialness, but simply out of your love and mercy, you snatched us from the fire to which we were gleefully going. And you have made us yours, and you have loved us with an everlasting love. And your love will carry us all the way, Father, to the end. Because you are able, and you alone, to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before you with great joy. And Father, we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we're going to sing another hymn here. This one is, this one is written by Sir Robert Grant. Uh, Sir Robert's father, Charles, was a leader in the evangelical wing of the Anglican Church. He was part of what was called the Clapham Sect. Uh, and he was a partner, his father was, in, with William Wilberforce in Wilberforce's effort to eradicate slavery in the British Empire. Uh, in other words, he was not just a believer, he was a committed believer. And the Grants welcomed their son, Robert, into the world in 1779. They were in India uh, because Charles was trying to negotiate an end to the ban the British uh, East India Company had put on missions and missionaries in the country of India. And so his dad, Charles, went to go negotiate the end of that. And, uh, and Robert grew up. Uh, actually he spent a lot of time in India. He grew up and became a distinguished civil servant. He was a member of parliament and a bill that he wrote uh, got passed through the lower house of commons twice uh, but was not passed until after he died to give full rights to all of England's Jews. They were treated as second class citizens in his day and he said that's wrong for a Christian country to do that to anyone but especially to God's people, to the Jews. And so he fought for their emancipation. Uh, he later served as Judge Advocate General of the British Armed Forces, the Army, Navy uh, uh, at that time. He was the, the chief judge over all of those military tribunals. 
He spent the last four years of his life as the governor of Bombay, India. And somehow, in the midst of all of those responsibilities, he found ample time to pursue a deep faith in Christ and to write a few hymns. And among them are this one, uh, O Worship the King, which is based on Psalm 104, verses 1 to 7. Now, if you want a good scripture to look at, this is a good scripture to look at. Psalm 104, verses 1 to 7, which is about the, the sovereign rule of God over all of his creation. So stand and sing, O worship the King, all glorious above. Pretty